questions. The questions that we ask are very important, aren't they? We've been in the middle of this series titled, Where is Our Hope? It's a series designed to kind of help us look at the purpose of government, the purpose and role that we play as citizens under our government. And this morning, we're going to ask just one question. I want you to be thinking about just one question. And it's one of the most important questions we could ever ask. It's the question, what is the purpose of life? How do you define life? And if you can be thinking about that one question, then the time that we spend together this morning will have been well worth it. This is so critical because so oftentimes we define life incorrectly. We have the wrong purpose, the wrong meaning of life. You know what? We're not the only ones. Jesus would help a young man think well about the purpose of life. I want you to see it. We're going to enter into the scene in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. It reads, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against every form of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To set the scene up for you, Jesus is speaking to a massive crowd. Luke opens it up at the beginning of chapter 12, and he says that there are thousands upon thousands. I mean, you get the idea that people are just bumping into each other, stepping on one another. I mean, it is quite a scene. And in the middle of this scene, Jesus is telling the massive crowds, it is at the height of his popularity, where people are coming to see this miracle worker, to hear from this gifted teacher, and he is warning them about the Pharisees and at the same time he's telling them live life without fear and so as he's giving this message you get the idea that this young man is just nudging his way through the crowd inching his way up trying to get Jesus's attention and somehow in just these throngs of people he does he gets Jesus's attention you know we don't have a lot of the background about this young guy, but we have enough clues just to surmise a couple of things. And so you can imagine that this guy is probably relatively young because he's coming to Jesus asking about an inheritance. And so we also know that his father has just died. And so here's a relatively young guy. His father has died and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is how it ought to be done, Jesus. And so you also have this idea that he has a brother, an older brother. Because in those days, the way the Jewish law worked was the oldest son would get twice as much. And so here's this young guy who's nudged his way through the crowd. He's determined to get Jesus' attention. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, my dad has just died. Can you tell my brother to divide the inheritance equally? He shouldn't get a double share. I mean, you get the idea that this guy's probably poor. He probably doesn't have a whole lot. And he just wants an equal portion. He just wants things to be 50-50. And you know what, if this weren't a Bible story, if you're just kind of hearing this story about what's happened, you know, our inclination is to sympathize with this young guy, right? 
and to think, you know what, that, that is right. I mean, what kind of older brother would keep a double portion anyway? I mean, the right thing to do, the kind thing to do would be to split it 50-50. I mean, what kind of older brother would hoard for himself a double share anyway? It would be nice of him to go ahead and give his younger brother an equal share to make sure that he's looked after well as also. And so this is the scene, and that's the logic of our world. That's the way our minds think. But Jesus responds, and his response just kind of clarifies things for us. It helps us to think correctly. He says, in essence, hey, buddy, you're asking me to weigh in on a matter that hasn't been assigned to me. I am not a judge or an arbitrator in this case. That, that's not my role here. And then he says, you know what? What you're asking for reveals the greed in your heart. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He turns to the crowds and he says, beware of every form of greed. Now, we all know about one form of greed, right? We, we know that, hey, wanting something you do not have, that's greedy. We understand that form of greed. But Jesus says, be on your guard against every form of greed. Did you know that there are other forms of greed? See, this is getting very interesting. And then Jesus introduces a parable that he's about to tell. He makes this statement. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, when you're studying parables, the question is always, what is the problem for which this parable provides the solution? Or what is the question that this parable is going to answer? If you are thinking those questions in your mind as you're reading and studying parables, then you're a long way down the road in understanding the meaning of the parable. And so as Jesus sets up this parable for us, he's letting us know that the root issue of this parable is, the question that this parable will answer is, well, then what does life consist of? What is the meaning of life? What is the proper definition of life? How do you define life? See, things are getting very fascinating because greed, it's just a symptom. The problem with greed is even if you get what you want, you can still be unsatisfied. That's not what life's about. So then what is the meaning of of life. That's going to be the question that this parable answers. This is getting very interesting. Let's go ahead and check out the parable that Jesus will tell. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, Jesus says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
So here's the story. There's this farmer. He's been very successful. He's got a crop that's just produced. It's gone bonkers. And Jesus, he's creating some kind of cultural interest here because he tells this story about this rich man. And the way that it worked in that culture, much like in our culture today, people loved hearing stories about the rich people. We wanted to know what the rich and famous were doing. And at the same time, they enjoyed hearing stories about poor people people. And the irony was, is the people in that day, much like that, people didn't like the rich people. Oh, they all wanted a little more. I mean, they, they just didn't want to be like them because that would be snobbery. But to have a little more, to have a little more of what they had, well, that would be satisfaction. And people liked hearing stories about the poor people, but nobody wanted to be poor. See, it's the same thing today. I mean, you get the 1%, they're evil, but I'd sure like to have a little more of that 1% that they have. See, the thinking of the world hasn't changed. In Jesus, he's pressing in on that thinking, on just the cultural norms of the day. And he's creating this intrigue, sucking the crowds in to the story. So they're going to be thinking about his every word. And so here's the situation. There's this rich, successful farmer. His crops are successful. They're just overflowing. And then we're invited into this internal monologue that this rich farmer is having with himself. And he's thinking, look, I've got all these crops. They're going bananas. I've got no place to store them. And so he thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear them down and I'm going to build, build bigger barns to store all my goods, to keep it all safe, to make sure it doesn't spoil. And then I'll just take life easy. I'll just eat, drink, be merry. Life will be good. I can travel around, have some free time, just retire and enjoy life. I mean, this guy, when you, when you look at it, he sounds like a pretty shrewd businessman, doesn't he? He's done super well. He's got this prosperous farm. He's accumulated a degree of wealth. But he doesn't want more. I mean, did you hear the guy's thoughts? He's not saying, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to sell some of my crops. I'm going to buy more land. Next year is going to be even better. I'm going to be the, have the biggest farms in all of Jerusalem. I mean, everybody's going to know my name because my farms are going to provide for this whole area. I'm going to be so rich. I'm going to get more and more and more and more. No, he's not saying that at all. He's just trying to protect what he has. He's just trying to make sure that his crops don't spoil, that they don't go bad. He's not trying to get more. This guy is satisfied with what he has. If anything, it seems like this guy is enjoying the American dream, doesn't it? I mean, he's just pursuing this satisfaction. He's, he's lived it. He's worked hard. He's managed his resources well. He's, he's ready to retire now to protect the goods that he's accumulated. Now he can travel around. He can see the world. He can enjoy life. I mean, if this were our culture, we'd be throwing this guy a party. We'd tell him, good job on all your hard work. You've lived life so well. Now enjoy your retirement. You've earned this. Have have some fun. I mean, he's accomplished the American dream. But remember here for a moment, Jesus is telling a story, this, this parable, and it's in response to a poor, young, unsatisfied man. And yet Jesus tells a parable about a presumably older, rich, satisfied man. How exactly does that work? I mean, this guy doesn't really seem greedy. 
in the way we understand greed, he's not looking and saying, I want that. He's just saying, I want to protect what I have. So it's very interesting because God, he interrupts the thinking of this rich man. And in his interruption, we get some clues on how this rich man can answer the question of this young man. And it starts off, God interrupts his thinking and says, fool. Now you may remember that Jesus, he gave the instruction, hey, don't call anybody a fool because if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And so we step back and we say, God, how is it that you can call this man a fool, but at the same time, you're telling us that we can't call people fool? Do you have some kind of special prerogative as God that we're not allowed to follow that example? No, obviously not. We are being shaped into the image of Christ. We are able to follow every example that God does. So what's the issue here? Well, it's the word. Our English doesn't necessarily translate it too well. When Jesus says, don't call anybody you fool, he uses the word moron, moron, okay, in the Greek. And so basically that refers to the whole of who they are, that you are just a fool at your core, that who you are is just idiotic, moronic. There's nothing redeemable about you. The word that God uses here when he interrupts this rich man, it's the Greek word aphron. It means without wisdom. That your thinking is incorrect. You are thinking foolishly. You aren't thinking rightly. So he's referring to the man's thinking, not the core of who he is. And that stops us in our tracks, doesn't it? Because this guy, he seems pretty shrewd. He's successful. He seems like a good steward. He's taking care of his things well. He does not seem greedy in the way we typically understand greed. I mean, this guy seems like a guy that you would imitate. He seems like a guy that you would want to mentor, some kind of younger businessman, some kind of younger farmer. He seems like a man of ethics and morality. He, he seems like a pretty decent guy. He doesn't seem like a fool. And yet God says, you're a fool. Why? Because this very night, your soul will be required of you. Did you hear what the man said? He says, I've laid up many goods for many years. God says, you're thinking foolishly because you don't have many years. You have tonight. Tonight. The problem is this man mistook time for eternity. And you know what? Oftentimes, so do we. Some of us, we're defining life this morning in terms of time. And we're, we're saying, you know, when I get this promotion, when I'm able to get that house, when I meet that special someone, when this happens, when that happens, when I can move to the job that I really want, and we're defining life in terms of the future, when this happens, when that happens by some kind of destination, and the truth is, we all know people, don't we, who they never had that future. That there was this unexpected car accident, that there was this tragic illness, an unexpected heart attack, a stroke. Something happens and time is taking away because time is not the definition of life. Don't define life in terms of time. The purpose of life is not time-related. See, if you are defining life in terms of time and the agenda of your life in terms of time and what you will do next and what will happen when, then you're being presumptuous because life doesn't give you any guarantees of tomorrow. You will have today. That's what you know. And so if you're defining life by all of your plans for the future, 
you've got the wrong definition of life. The question is, how would God define your life right now? What would he say about your life right now? I mean, maybe you're working so hard to get that advancement, but the purpose is just so that you can get ahead, so that you can move ahead and move on up and advance. But see, that shouldn't be the root of your hard work. That shouldn't be the core of why you're working so hard. Maybe you're kind of a slacker right now. And you're telling yourself, oh, when this happens, if I were in that position, if, when this takes place, well, then I'll really work hard. I mean, then I will step up my game because that's the dream. That's what I want. And when I'm there, I'll give it my all. Well, then you're defining life in terms of time. You're defining it incorrectly. Instead of defining life in terms of time, we define life in terms of God's glory. How, how can everything I do right now, whatever I eat, whatever I drink, whatever I wear, whatever I've got going on, how is all of that going to give God glory in the here and now? See, if you define life in terms of time, you do it incorrectly. Don't define life by time, but by God's glory. The rich man, though, he had another problem. That wasn't his only problem. Did you catch how he was reasoning with himself? He said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods for many years. You understood he mistook his body for his soul. He says soul, and then he defined life in terms of the physical, in terms of this physical body. He mistook his body for his soul. Don't define life in the physical. Don't define life in the physical. But you realize most of our culture does. I mean, that, that's our typical way of thinking. Our culture would have you believe that life is best defined by how attractive you are, by how smart you are, by how strong you are, by how much money you make, by the amount of cool things that, that you've accumulated, that it's all physical. And we even use words, don't we, much like this guy. Well, God said to me, and then we just say, uh, Whatever it is that we believe, whatever we want to happen. And what we really mean when we said, well, God said oftentimes is, I've made up my mind. I mean, this is what I'm going to do. I will use spiritual terms to define physical realities. Why? Because I've made up my mind. And so we define life in the physical rather than the spiritual. We concentrate on the physical things and we miss the spiritual things. I mean, this frustrated the author of Hebrews. He got so frustrated because he says, look, you've defined life in terms of the physical and instead of the spiritual, and you've totally messed up where you are because by this time, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be coming alongside and discipling other people and showing them what it looks like to live the Jesus life and how they can walk with Jesus and then disciple others and equip others to walk with Jesus. But instead, you're not a teacher. You're just a baby. You, you still need the elementary things of the faith. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He's frustrated because he's saying, if you understood the foundations of the faith, it would change the way you live. 
but instead you're so concentrated on the physical that you don't even have the basics. And do you see what the basics are? I mean, did you go back? Did you see how, how the author of Hebrews defined the basics of Christianity? He says, works apart from faith is meaningless. Baptism, that's essential. The laying on of hands, you better have an understanding about that. The resurrection of the dead, you should have that mastered. That's one of the basics. Eternal judgment, you should understand that. That is a basic of Christian doctrine. He says, you don't even understand that yet. You're still defining life in the physical. Worrying about advancing at work rather than growing in the faith. Worrying about being baptized into some kind of new position or some kind of difficult situation. You're worrying about the resurrection of some past sin coming back to bite you. You're worrying about the temporary judgment of man. And if you're defining life, which is soul, in terms of the physical, it's not a good definition of life. This is what the author of Hebrews says. This is the point that Jesus is making. The culture is screaming at you. This is what really matters. This is what you really ought to be focused on. And Jesus is saying, no, you focus on the spiritual stuff and all that physical stuff just seems to come along. He gives us that. God is saying your life should demonstrate a life of faith. If you're a Christian, you should be baptized. This symbolizes the death of the old life. And it's now that was used to be defined by the physical. And now this new life that is defined by the spiritual. And when difficult problems arise, you've examined your life. You've examined the sin in your life. And you come to the elders, these faithful men in the church, to lay hands on you and pray for you. You understand the laying on of hands, of coming to the elders and asking this to be done. You should be confident of your future resurrection of the dead. You should understand that. And you should know about the eternal judgment from God the Father. All this is basic Christian doctrine. These are the 101s of the faith. And the author says you should have moved on from these doctrines long time ago. You should have advanced. You should be teaching. But you haven't because you define life in terms of the physical instead of the spiritual. Don't define life by the physical but by the spiritual. The rich man, he made a third mistake in his thinking, in his foolish thinking. He says, I've got, many year, I've got many goods for many years. And God said, tonight your soul is required of you. And then all that stuff that you've acquired, whose will it be? Whose will it be then after you're gone? You understand this man mistook what was, his, what was God's for what was his. He thought all this stuff, all these crops, all these barns, all this stuff that he's accumulated, he thought it was all his. He said, I've worked hard. I've managed this well. It's mine. It's all mine. And God says, if you think you have all this stuff long term, you don't understand life at all. It's not yours. Death comes and whose will it be then? Don't define life in terms of ownership, but in terms of stewardship. See, the, the culture will ask us about the size of our bank account, about how nice our house is, about how fancy our car is, and we can define life by how well we keep up with the Joneses. We, we can look at all the physical stuff that we think we own and we say, relative to culture, I'm doing all right. Here's how I stack up. 
And God says, that's the wrong definition because it's not about ownership. It's about stewardship. And you know what? When you're a steward of something, that changes things, doesn't it? Because you understand, I don't own this. This is just on loan. It's temporary. And most of us, when we borrow something from someone else, we want to return it in better condition than we found it. That, that's what a good steward does. I mean, you take care of this and you want to return it even better. See, you understand that a steward adds value to all of life. It, it, when you steward something well, you're able to use it and create value from it. And we've experienced this, haven't we? I mean, this, this is how we do our jobs. We steward our jobs well so that we add value to life. Have you ever been on a, on a flight and you had the flight attendant who's just simply instructing you on how to put on your seatbelt? But the way they do it, the way they tell you, the smile that they have, it adds value to the whole flight experience. Have you ever been through a toll booth and actually have one of those toll booth workers look at you and smile at you and wish you uh, a great day and add value to even going through a toll booth? See, we, we have those rare moments in life where sometimes even the most mundane things, there's someone there who's stewarding their job so well that it adds value to life. That's how we ought to be in whatever task we've been given. We, we, we serve in such a way that we add value to life because we understand we are just stewarding this position. We are just stewarding these resources. We don't define life in terms of ownership, but in terms of of stewardship. Now, I want you to think back at this parable with me. God calls this rich man a fool for thinking foolishly. And he says, so is the one who lays up for himself treasure on earth and is not rich toward God. See, if you define life in the same way as this rich man in terms of time, instead of in terms of God's glory, in terms of the physical rather than the spiritual, in terms of ownership rather than stewardship. God says you're thinking foolishly. He says you have the wrong definition of life because here's the point. Life's definition is not found in the abundance of one's possessions, but in the richness of a relationship with God. The purpose of life is not found in the accumulation of possessions, but in the richness of one's relationship with God. If you remember back to the very beginning of the story, there's this young man, presumably poor young man, who prompts Jesus to tell this parable. He wanted more of that inheritance. He wanted things 50-50. He thought if he just had more... Well, that would be life. Things would be good. I could be satisfied. And we look at him and we say, he's greedy. The great irony here is Jesus tells a story about a man who doesn't really seem greedy to us. He's not a man after more. He's a man satisfied with what he has. And we can look at it just on the outskirts and say, how is it that this young unsatisfied poor guy, how could he possibly relate to this rich, satisfied older guy? You see, the issue is they both defined life the same way because another form of greed is short-sighted satisfaction. 
see this rich man and he's defined life by saying, oh, I've made it. I had everything I want. Life is good. I can eat, drink, be merry, travel around, just enjoy the rest of the time that I have left. This is good. This is life. It's short-sighted satisfaction. He's missed the whole point. He's missed the whole reason. You know what you also get in this passage? You also see the care of Jesus. Because right after this story takes place, Jesus pulls his disciples away, away from all the crowds, because he wants to make sure that his disciples do not miss the purpose, the reason, the definition of life. And so he tells his disciples this. I want you to see it. Luke 22 through 34, Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear for life. You understand he's defining life. He says life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have a storeroom, or they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They did not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." We can spend all of our life thinking that the meaning of life is defined in terms of time, in terms of physical things, in terms of ownership. We can work so hard to get ahead. We can look so forward to that next thing. We can try so hard to just own that acre, to get that house, to drive that car, to increase our domain. When God has in mind to give you the kingdom, God's defined the purpose of life, and it's in terms of a richness of a relationship with him. How do you define life? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you cause us to ask even these most central questions to all of life. How do we define life? What is the purpose of life? And God, as we study your word, we see that it is not tied to the physical. It is not tied to time. It is not tied to ownership. It's tied to the spiritual. It's tied to your glory. It's tied to stewardship. God, help us to define life well. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.